Today's episode of WMFA is brought to you by Creative Nonfiction Magazine. Simply put, Creative Nonfiction is true stories, well told. Learn more at creativenonfiction.org today. Welcome to WMFA, a podcast about why and how we write. I'm Courtney Ballastier, and this week I'm speaking with Casey Sepp, whose debut book, Furious Hours, Murder, Fraud, and the Last Trial of Harper Lee, is out now from Knopf. Casey is a writer from the eastern shore of Maryland. After graduating from Harvard with a degree in English, she earned an MPhil in theology at Oxford as a Rhodes Scholar. Her work has appeared in The New Yorker, The New York Times, and The New Republic, among other publications. Furious Hours is part murder mystery, part historical narrative, part literary biography. A remarkable true story about a series of Alabama murders and the book that Harper Lee never finished writing about them. Casey organizes the book into three biographical sections, introducing us first to the murderer, and later victim of murder, Reverend Willie Maxwell, then to the lawyer, Tom Radney, who would represent both Maxwell and his murderer, and finally to the iconic Harper Lee and the challenges that plagued her career. It's a fascinating and absorbing narrative that raises many questions about an author whose life, and famously limited output, already raised quite a few. As Casey writes of Harper Lee, even her mysteries have mysteries. Furious Hours is also, of course, a book about a book that could not be written. Casey and I discussed the challenge of picking up where the author of one of the most best-selling novels of all time left off. We also talk about knowing what you need as a writer, the negative space of what you leave off the page, and the lines that can be drawn and erased between invention and reality. You can hear a bonus segment from our conversation, in which Casey talks about some of her favorite material that did not make it into the book, by joining the WMFA Patreon community at patreon.com slash WMFA podcast and pledging just $2 a month. I'm sure there are a lot of reporters who would just say like, well, you know, going to sit at the Waffle House is not reporting, but it feels very important to me to go and do that. I, I would love to get started as an entry point to just talk about how you came across this story. I know you were you were down in Alabama um, reporting on you know right after the announcement had been made that Ghost Out of Watchmen would be released. Um, but but how did you stumble upon this story? Yeah, sure thing. Um, so I right, I was down there. So Ghost Out of Watchmen, you know, this incredibly shocking announcement after decades of saying she was never going to publish another book. Harper Lee up and announces she's publishing another book. And, you know, understandably, there were these questions about the provenance of that manuscript and about her ability at that age and kind of in the state she was in. She'd had a severe stroke several years before and, you know, whether or not she was able to consent to publication and the older sister of hers who had kind of overseen all of her business and literary affairs had just died a few months before that. And so, right, I, I went down to sort of look into those questions. And to that end, um, at one point, I asked to be kind of put in touch with anyone who had ever dealt with the lawyer who was in charge of Harper Lee's affairs, um, because she turned out to be kind of at the center of that Watchman story. She um, was the one who had seemingly rediscovered the manuscript and who was shepherding its publication. And 
of the many people I was put in touch with, um, some of them were the Radneys, and of course they had tried to get back these materials that Tom Radney, the lawyer at the heart of my book, had loaned to Harper Lee in the 70s. And in the course of talking to them just about the, this kind of documentary mystery, you know, what had happened to these files and, you know, whether Harper Lee still had them, you know, they got into the meat and potatoes of that original case. And I had loved Harper Lee's work since I was a kid. And I had read the biography of her that came out, you know, about 10 years ago. And um, I had read, you know, articles over the years. And the Maxwell case is sometimes mentioned, but it was this kind of tiny, you know, note, maybe a page or two here or there. And, you know, in the in the course of one phone call, it was just so clear that Harper Lee's work had been a lot more extensive than anyone seemed to think, and that I just thought the original case was so interesting. Um, so, you know, I came to talk to them about this one tiny aspect of it, which was what had become of Tom Radney's legal files, but started to look more into the original case and realized there were, you know, more people alive who had been witness to those original events and more people alive who had met Harper Lee when she was trying to write her own book about the case. And there's just more and more and more material. And I wrote a short article for The New Yorker about it in 2015 um, and then heard from even more people after that article came out, you know, um, people who had had pimento cheese sandwiches with her for lunch in Alex City or, you know, whose grandfather had been interviewed by her. And once again, it just seemed like there was so much material and that this great story you know, had never been put into book form because everybody else who knew about it was worried that Harper Lee was going to scoop them. <laughs> and she was sitting on this great story, but of course there was room to write a book about her as well. And it was clear to me at some point that, you know, whatever she had written of her own book on the Maxwell case, that version would never have included her work on the case and would never have told us anything about her as a writer or in any kind of autobiographical way. Right. And and incidentally, that was just like a, a small moment that was so devastating to me as a reader when I got to that moment toward the end of the book where there is that inquiry about, well, where did all of these files that Big Tom gave her, um, where did they go? And and is it a granddaughter, I believe, and gets the response from the estate that Harper Lee just doesn't remember who he is. Yeah, exactly. And of course, you know, that was very incongruous with the kind of public narrative about her memory and kind of mental state. And so understandably, this interaction, you know, had been memorable to them, not only because of the, the contents of, you know, his estate that were in question, you know, these legal files and whatever else he had given her, you know, again, it was just right. It was an emotional experience for them of realizing, oh, wow, you know, this kind of big project of hers is not even something she remembers. Um, so so that that was, you know, kind of the kernel of the story for me. And I love politics and I love religion. And so that original case, you know, in the same way as it interested Harper Lee, it just seemed so fascinating to me. And, you know, I, I thought this would be a really interesting book because it would get to be about so many different things, not just, you know, a novelist, not just literary history, but about political history and about religious history. And once I knew more about the insurance fraud, you know, a kind of economic history too. So, you know, right. It was one of these things. It was just sort of like, well, if Harper Lee's not going to do it, why not try? <laughs> right. <laughs> and again, emphasis on try. <laughs> right. You know, for a long time there was this. You know, understandably, people would kind of look at me and say, like, so let me get this straight. You're going to write the book Harper Lee couldn't. 
you know, and I would quickly backtrack and say like, well, not exactly. There's this, you know, other dimension to it. But of course, right in my heart of hearts, I did have the fear of like, oof, is it cursed? You know, is, is it going to work? Is it going to come together? Or is there something intrinsically resistant to storytelling about this great story? But of course, you know, on this side of it, it did come together. And it's obviously not the book that, um, it's not Harper Lee's book. It's, right. it's very different. But um, I, I hope that the aspects of it that would be in common with her is, you know, the kind of meticulous reconstruction of those original crimes and the kind of biographical portrait of um, Tom and the kind of geographic portrait of this region of Alabama. I hope that that would be pleasing to her, even if she were annoyed by the bits that are about her. Right, right. And, and you know, just as a working writer trying to pitch a project, it's such a great, it's one of those ideas that you don't come across very often that is both kind of un, un, undercover and not, you know, like there's so much of yeah, it yeah. that gives you um, recognition and, and you know, name recognition and, and sellability, but then also somehow this is a great story within a very known story that nobody was talking about. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. It's very, you know, perceptive of you to frame it that way, because, of course, that is the great predicament around any biographical project having to do with Harper Lee. There's such an incongruity between the public appetite for information about her life and information about her life. And, you know, to some extent, that's the that's the kind of problem. You know, there will never no biography will probably ever be able to sate the interest in her life and in the kind of emotional realities of what happened to her as a writer. And I try and be forthright about those gaps and about the kind of deep unknowability of someone like Harper Lee around really fundamental questions like, why did she stop writing or what made her so pathologically private? But of course, you know, a lot of readers understandably love her work and they just want to know every answer to every question they've ever had about her. So they bring, you know, you're right, it's a kind of appetite that a lot of people bring to the book, but in some ways it's it's insatiable. Right. And and one thing that I was really struck by was this this question that kind of keeps recurring about kind of nuance and complexity and telling stories that maybe challenge a kind of presumption um, with nuance and complexity and, and how much Harper Lee was struggling with that in her fiction. Yeah. And sure. then, and then the right. way that like the same problem kind of seemed to resurface for her. And I mean, among many other problems that she had with the work of actually getting a book on paper um, for this project, yeah. the, the similarity yeah. there was striking. Absolutely. So, right. So I think there are these kind of superficial reasons that Harper Lee or that any of us find it hard to work. You know, we are perfectionists. And so when we sit down to write, there's a very large hurdle or obstacle to kind of getting started. And once you start, it's very easy to discard or to give up and grow frustrated. And, you know, it's hard to figure out what you want to write about or to move beyond the kind of distractions of everyday life or once you've written it, you know, you have to go back through the difficult task of revising. So those are kind of, you know, superficial and almost universal experiences for writers. And on top of those, Harper Lee had a kind of constellation of, you know, personal problems, you might call them. And, you know, that was actually serious depression. That was a serious drinking problem. That was the kind of unreasonable expectations that accompanied you know, any work after so tremendously successful work as Mockingbird. But I think you're right to point to this other kind of problem she had. And 
that was the compulsion to write honestly and complexly about the region she was born in. You know, she wanted to write very, very tricky stories about the kind of racism that today we have a language and a vocabulary for, you know, systemic racism, the kind that does not manifest itself in overt violence against people who are different from us, but coercive violence and discrimination. And to that end, you know, the original version of Mockingbird, and there's been such a tremendous debate about Ghost at a Watchman, but I, I think it's, it's, it's not inaccurate to say that it was, you know, the first version of the story that became To Kill a Mockingbird. And, and that first version was actually, you know, not nearly as focused on the false rape accusations against Tom Robinson. You know, that's but a brief episode in the novel. And most of the novel is actually focused on the relationship between Scout and Atticus and the kind of everyday, or dare we say, you know, civilized racism of the generation that Atticus represented. And, you know, the, the kind of antagonism between generations and Scout's attempt to convince her father that, you know, the kind of integrated reality she lives in New York is superior to the version of life he's living in Alabama. And, you know, that was a very, very fine needle to thread because, of course, what it meant was confronting seemingly nice people with their very not nice views. And it meant that, you know, even if you weren't part of a lynching mob, if you were the kind of person joining the White Citizens Council and trying to keep blacks from you know, eating at the same restaurant as you or attending the same schools as your children or even integrating, you know, religious spaces of worship, that that was bad and maybe even just as bad because it contributed to the kind of peripheral racism that manifested itself in violence. And, you know, of course, what we know is when Ghosts at a Watchman arrived at Lippincott, the editors there were tremendously interested in the characters and in the place, but the editor who ended up working with Harper Lee really encouraged her to consolidate virtue in some characters and to consolidate villainy in others. And you you get the, the more easily managed story that is To Kill a Mockingbird. And, you know, in a lot of straightforward ways, Mockingbird is just an aesthetically superior novel. It is easier to read. The scenes work better. The dialogue is better. It's far more dramatic. There's a much more satisfying, you know, crescendo and decrescendo of plot. But I think to Harper Lee's great frustration, she was forced to leave behind this trickier, more complicated story about racism. And you're right to point out that, again, you know, when she was looking into the Maxwell case, what she found was an incredibly messy plot. And it didn't map on to the kinds of stories people thought she should be telling. And the characters were, again, more complicated than just saint and sinner. You know, the murderous voodoo preacher had also been grossly discriminated against and his life had been circumscribed by systemic racism and the opportunities available to him had been circumscribed by virtue of class and race. And, you know, the seemingly heroic white lawyer had also profited from black death and had also had not this triumphant political career, but a very failed one. And so here was poor Harper Lee again, you know, on top of those superficial struggles as a writer really struggling to figure out a way to make the story believable and to make the story work in the way that a plot has to work. You know, life is messy, but it is still the duty of the writer to figure out a way to shape it and structure it and make it a satisfying read. And I just think, right, on top of everything else that was going on in her life as a writer, she just found a very hard story to tell. Right. Yeah. And, and it made me wonder while you were saying that, 
like, you know, is it is it going far too far to wonder like if Harper Lee was a writer kind of out of her time? Out of her time. I don't know. I mean, in some ways, you know, she was completely of her yeah, time, yeah. right? You know, Mockingbird came out in 60, and part of the reason it had such a kind of tremendous national response is that in a lot of places, you know, integration was moving forward, and there were real triumphs of the civil rights movement. And not that that work is finished by any means, it continues to this day. But, you know, she was a writer, you know, she lived most of her adult life in Manhattan. Right. Integrationist politics were not, you know, scandalous there. And, Obviously, you know, she was a contemporary of someone like Tom Wolfe's, right? And and Tom Wolfe obviously had no trouble kind of putting together tricky, morally complicated characters. I think that the kind of corner she was backed into as a writer, though, is Mockingbird is complex in very subtle and interesting ways, but it's also an extremely popular novel. And I think the kind of trickier problem is, you know, she had been this bohemian kind of beatnik when she was in college. Her politics were radical. Her writing was satirical. And, you know, she was a bit on the fringes at the University of Alabama. And then To Kill a Mockingbird was just, you know, totally mainstream. It's one of the best-selling novels of all time. It is not obscure literary fiction where, you know, you really have to budget, you know, several weekends to make your way through. It's not Ulysses, right? And the kind of maybe slightly less mainstream versions of moral complexity or kind of even literary complexity, you know, what happened between Watchmen and Mockingbird was kind of streamlined plot. It's not just that the children were aged down and the kind of, you know, setting Mm -hmm. was constrained. It it really is that the the writing became a little less abrasive, a little more, Mm -hmm. you know, middle brow is, um, it's certainly not the kind of writing she was doing when she had her her column in college was called Caustic Comment, and she really was famous for just being, right. you know, completely satirical, almost like, you know, the kind of lampoon of, of campus. And, you know, I think that was probably no more shocking for anyone than it was for Harper Lee. You know, I quote this extraordinary letter in the book that she wrote to Gregory Peck when she was in the thick of the Maxwell case. And I take it very seriously, and she's wrestling with the fact that, you know, her publishers want gore and autopsies, her agents want a bestseller, and she wants to feel like she hasn't defrauded the reader. And those are very different expectations, right? You know, if you if you write right. a bestseller, you know, you go for heroes and villains, and you streamline the plot, and you reduce complexity. And if you want gore and autopsies, you know, you write the sordid, tawdry version, and it, it is truly blood and guts. And if you want the version that is not defrauding the reader, you admit things like, I don't know this, and we may never know that. And, you know, and this person who was seemingly heroic actually, you know, had made some ethically questionable decisions. And I think, you know, that's too many masters to serve. And I I think in that sense, she really probably did stymie herself with the problem of meeting many contradictory expectations. Right. And and I mean, I think... Part of what's so sad about all of that is I think every writer, probably every artist of, of any stripe can, I definitely can relate to that feeling, you know, not to assign a, a, an idea or a thought to her, but kind of based on on what we were just saying, this this idea that maybe the work you love and the work you produce don't match and you don't quite know why. Yeah. That, that is, a, it's a really hard, it's a really hard pill to swallow of like, okay, well, it might not you know, am I not capable of that? Does this project not call for that? You know, there are a lot of possibilities. And if you if you tend toward depressive thinking, right. maybe you kind of latch onto the worst of them. 
Sure. Or, you know, again, I just think a lot of, you're right to even just say kind of artists in general, because I know, for instance, this this is a kind of thing that the visual artists I know struggle with in particular. You know, there are notions about what's commercially viable. Right. And, you know, there are, you know, I, I think to some extent, this is, again, a kind of pejorative version, but obviously the kind of, you know, Thomas Kincaid Hallmark version of pastels and watercolors is commercially viable to some extent. Mm-hmm. And yet, that is the same art produced in any generation. And the truly distinctive artists are ones who have a different way of looking at the world. And they, they have a kind of unique vision. And, you know, I just think, right, in any genre, you wrestle with the sense of, well, am I just trying to reproduce what people already like? Or am I trying to do something new and innovative and different? And, you know, I, I think that that pressure is, is even stronger when you've done something that's kind of managed the hat trick of doing it all. Right. It's staggering. You know, the kinds of novels that tend to win the Pulitzer Prize, for instance, like, you know, they are often completely incongruous with the bestseller list. And maybe they pop onto it because of the press they get. But, you know, they're they're not James Patterson or John Grisham are not mm-hmm. winning the Pulitzer for the most mm-hmm. part. You know, they're selling all of those novels. And, and here was this curious phenomenon. You know, Mockingbird was doing it all. And then even more strangely, you know, kind of met an even broader cultural appetite when, when it was adapted into the film. So, right, I just think, you know, it's it's a lot. And it's quite shocking. You know, I mentioned Harper Lee had published in college. You know, she'd had this column on the student newspaper and she'd published a few tiny bits of fiction, a few kind of satirical pieces in the humor magazine, too. But she really hadn't published anything. And I think it's striking, too, to imagine, you know, I'm sure that a lot of your listeners dream of a certain kind of success. And here was poor Harper Lee, you know, from this small town in Alabama. She moves to New York. She's there, you know, writing for a decade. Then finally, Mockingbird comes out kind of against all odds. Mm -hmm. You know, it's taken her years to write it, years to revise it. And here it is. And at 34, she's almost instantly one of the most successful working novelists in the country. And she hadn't really published anything in that way before. And she hadn't been under that kind of scrutiny. And she had never had that much public interest in her life. And I think it really is one of those, you know, kind of counterfactuals to getting everything you want. You know, if you're you're a writer listening to this and all you can think of is to have, you know, the kind of number one bestseller and then, you know, to think about if you're really prepared for it and to think about the ways it would kind of warp your expectations and desires as a writer and really just, you know, kind of interfere with whatever internal logic and ambition you have. And in that way, you know, I just think the kind of human drama of Harper Lee's life is tremendously interesting. Yeah, absolutely. That was that was really kind of in in many ways the major story for me. You know, I just saw so clearly in Harper Lee and I mean, it's it's horrible to say it, but, but like a cautionary tale, you know, it's like, okay, well, we talk about perfection paralysis and all of these sorts of things that like, you know, in these little moments feel really difficult to surmount. And then here's what happens when you really can't surmount them. Yeah. I mean, I guess the, the other way in which I just feel like Harper Lee's story is um, heartbreaking, but also, you know, cautionary is that the story of Mockingbird is actually a really beautiful story about collaboration and the ways in which editors and agents and, you know, whatever kind of infrastructure you have around writing and revision, that that infrastructure can be, you know, truly wondrous. 
And Mockingbird is a story of, you know, two agents who met a young writer and helped her kind of find discipline in her life and encouraged her and really brought out the best in her work and then helped her find the editor, you know, who unlocked a talent she, you know, really maybe didn't even know she had, you know, and through dutiful and careful revision and a little bit of debate and maybe even a little bit of strong arming, you know, produced a better book than the one she had written on her own. And I just think, again, part of what happened with the Maxwell case, so she she's really starting this later true crime project 17, 18 years after Mockingbird. And basically that infrastructure was gone. You know, the agents had died the editor had retired and died, and and the kinds of people who were helping her with her work weren't around. And yeah. whatever kind of success you may have professionally, I just think it's important to think about the emotional safeguards you can build around your process as an artist. And you know that's making sure you have friends who are really inside the work with you and and who can rescue you when you are despairing, and you know who can give you the critical eye you need to make it better. And you know, I just think that is the most grievous aspect of Harper Lee's life as an artist, which is she never found a way to replicate that structure. And she yeah. had friends and family who loved her and they were protective and they were present in, in lots of meaningful ways, but they weren't inside her work. Mm-hmm. You know, she never let them into her life as a writer. She would not talk about her writing and not that, you know, look, plenty of writers, plenty of artists are, you know, solitary creatures deep inside the work. And maybe you need to go be alone for long periods, but you just want to make sure you have people who meet you somewhere within it. And, you know, and maybe they're the line editors. Maybe they're just the big ideas people you talk to at the beginning or the end. Or they're just the receptive audience where, you know, I, I actually, my um, wife is a writer too. And we're very different in terms of the feedback we need. But, you know, she is the kind of writer who sometimes just wants me to read it and make sure it's there. And not utter a critical word and just say like keep going. I so even you. if you yeah. <laughs> even yeah. if even if you have just those kinds of people who are only pretending to read it but they're actually making sure that you are producing work and that you are opening it up to the world. I just think that's important. And and that's really the side of things. You know, when we meet Harper Lee when she's working on the Maxwell case, she's energized by the social aspects of reporting and she's optimistic and she's enthusiastic and she just brings such energy to the project Mm -hmm. and it evaporates when she comes back to work on it alone and you know you just wonder why couldn't she find someone who could you know read drafts or who could just talk to her at the end of the day about how it was going in whatever generic way or you know at the end of chapters look them over and I just think that's really the kind of important emotional work we do for ourselves as writers, which is just make sure we're not alone. Yeah, I think that's really beautifully put. It hadn't quite occurred to me that way, but I I totally agree. And then I see now that you say that, you know, I'm thinking about how much, you know, she was so present in Capote's process. Oh, and, gosh, she, I know, right? and she yeah. did so much for him. And, you know, where for whatever reasons that that didn't reciprocate, it didn't reciprocate. Yeah, I mean, right. So Capote dies in 84. But right, there'd been this kind of fracture in their friendship. But yeah, I mean, gosh, what a beautiful story going all the way back to childhood. I, I sort of love, you know, with Capote and Lee, he spends a few years, he wasn't born in Monroeville, he was born in New Orleans, but he spends a few years of his childhood living with these cousins in Monroeville and then comes back and visits quite a few summers as a as a young person. And, you know, there they are, this gosh, tremendous coincidence of geography and genius. You know, they literally mm. spend all these formative years right across the fence from one another. And, 
you know, Capote actually, right, he's this great example of he was incredibly dysfunctional. He had all kinds of addictions and problems, and yet he was quite prolific. And part of that, I think, is just he knew he knew what he needed as a writer, and he was always partnered. You know, Harper Lee um, did not have the kind of you know public partnerships that he did, but he was always partnered. He often traveled with friends or um, with romantic partners, and so right in Cold Blood, you know, right away he knows he's going to this quote foreign territory of Kansas, and you know he brought along a friend, someone right. to both help with the reporting and just be there to talk through it. And right, it turns out that Harper Lee was, you know, tremendously helpful in, in ways beyond kind of mere presence. You know, she produced all this material for him and um, actually, again, kind of beautifully line edited and reviewed the draft of In Cold Blood, the um, kind of page proofs. But yes, there again, it's odd. She couldn't find, you know, she really shied away from literary friendship. So not surprisingly, there just weren't many writers in her life in a kind of personal way. And so, right, I mean, to some extent, that that is another just kind of straightforward contrast between the two of them. Mm-hmm. Capote, you know, had, I don't want to overstate the matter, he actually had just as many literary feuds, and he, you know, was sued sure. by Gore Vidal, and yes. you know, made a lot of headlines for his animosity towards other writers. But yes, actually just had tremendous artistic and cultural friendships and people who nourished his work and gave him ideas and and helped him produce good work, even, you know, in the extremes of his personal problems. You know, there he is, you know, he's Odin and turning up at the hospital, but he's mm-hmm. still, you know, figuring out ways to write. And, right, it's just another way that um, it's not as if she didn't have models for better behavior and kind of higher functioning in her life, but but she just couldn't seem to replicate them. Yeah, I, I just want to read quickly this line that really... Um, that speaks to all of this and just really blew my mind because when you really think about the weight of these prominent other Southern authors and their kind of in their opinions of you, um, you write uh, as a post-war Southern novelist, uh, she was assumed to be close to and influenced by Carson McCullers, whom she barely knew and who resented her for quote poaching on my literary preserves. Flannery O'Connor, whom she never knew and who belittled Mockingbird as quote a child's book. And Eudora Welty, whom she adored but would later learn regarded her as a one-hit wonder. And I was just like, oh God, like <laughs> yeah. And poor Harper Lee. It's actually like very you know the truth is you know she was satirical and funny and bawdy and could tell a good joke but she was actually this very tender-hearted person and as so many artists are yes of course and and most sensitive of all things about her writing so right you know she did um have a friendship I I barely get to mention him in the book but um the southern novelist Reynolds Price was a Mm. friend of hers although they barely spent any time kind of in the flesh they talked on the phone some and they um had the same godchild one of Gregory Peck's grandchildren was um, a godchild of, of them both. And, you know, so they weren't totally absent, but even there, someone like Reynolds Price, it's not as if she was sharing work with him. It's not as if they saw one another very much. And, you know, the kind of usual suspects that people, everyone thought she was friends with, she had no connection to at all. And so, right, she, she, she was not reclusive or isolated as a person, but she was as an artist. Today's episode of WMFA is brought to you by Creative Nonfiction Magazine. For nearly 25 years, Creative Nonfiction has been fuel for nonfiction writers and storytellers, publishing a lively blend of exceptional long and short form nonfiction narratives and interviews, as well as columns that examine the craft, style, 
trends, and ethics of writing true stories well told. Learn more at creativenonfiction.org today. Well, I would love to talk some about your own process. Um, it's very fun with nonfiction books. I end up, we end up talking a lot more about the content of the book. Um, but I, but I don't want to, I don't want to not talk to you about your own process with this incredible story too, because it's really put together tremendously. And I was, I was really, I was saying to some friends as I was reading it that a part of what I loved about the reading experience of it is it felt like a real, like a really long, meaty New Yorker article and not, and I don't mean yeah, in a, yeah. like, it's not, it's not worthy of a book. I don't mean that at all, but that, you know, you take all of these wonderful detours into that. We get these little potted histories of like the insurance industry and, and the history of true crime writing. And, and it's just this really lovely context that you build. And, and I would love to talk to you about how you put all that together, because I'm sure uh, information as it did with Harper Lee probably overwhelmed you pretty quickly. Mm. Um, what's your, what's your reporting process like? Are you, uh, are you an organized reporter? Am I an organized reporter? Uh, depends on your definition of organized. Um, you know, I would say I'm a methodical reporter. I don't know, you know, it's, I'm sure that, I'm sure there's a better way to do it because there's almost always a better way to do anything. But, um, kind of in the way the book is, you know, a lot of things, I'm almost always doing a lot of things as a reporter. So in the case of, you know, a book like this, which is really a story that's set in the past for the most part, um, a lot of what I did initially was kind of figure out, you know, who was still alive, who had witnessed these original events or who knew these characters. And to that end, you know, I sent several hundred query letters and made several hundred query phone calls of, you know, are you so-and-so? And, you know, if you're not, do you know so-and-so? And if so-and-so is your deceased parent, you know, did they leave behind any materials or memoirs or did they ever talk to you about this? And, you know, that, that was on the personal side of these characters and that was on the professional side of the original true crime case. And that was everyone who had had any kind of professional role in the original insurance litigation or in the original murder investigations, people who had known Tom Radney in a political um, or a legal context. And then in the case of Harper Lee, at various points, it amounted to the desperation of, you know, were you alive between the years of, you know, 1926 and 2016 living in Manhattan or Monroeville? Right, right. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> In, in the case of Harper Lee, at various points, it was a lot more creative than the kind of usual suspects, you know, okay, so-and-so told me so-and-so might have talked to you about so-and-so who knew her, and, you know, do you know anything about that? But, um, so that was all kind of the remote and the kind of generic, you know, throw spaghetti at the cabinet and see if it sticks. But um, beyond that, I, I actually, for two long spells and then for a bunch of kind of shorter spells, I rented a place um, on Lake Martin or in Alex City. And, you know, that was kind of more atmospheric and accidental reporting. You know, you would just talk to people about what it was like to live there and what it was like there in the 70s and yeah. in the 80s. And, you know, someone, it wasn't always intentional around the story itself, but I got very interested. So obviously the book, after I tell you a little bit about um, the trial of Robert Burns. And of course, Robert Burns is alive. And so you can talk to him about that. And, you know, right. Judge Avery's widow is alive. So she can talk to you about her husband and the court reporter's lives. So she can talk to you about that. And 
you know, Tom Radney has plenty of legal colleagues who are alive. So you can kind of build that scene. But then almost immediately the book retreats into this kind of geographic John McPhee-esque story about where it all takes place. And Mm -hmm. it's a little bit about just the kind of natural history of the region. So the Tallapoosa River, the Alabama River, you know, the kind of space that is Alabama. Um, And then it's a technology story about hydroelectric power and how these tremendous dams changed the um, southern waterways and consequently changed southern towns because they mechanized, you know, the cotton mills and they brought electricity to people who'd never had it before. And, you know, sections like that just grew out of conversations with old timers or, you know, people who said, well, you know, my grandmother used to tell me about what it was like before the lake came or I remember before 280 was dueled, you know, that kind of highway that bisects Alexander City. And, you know, that that to me is every bit as important reporting as the nitty gritty, you know, I need to know what happened on this day. You know, that's the that's the deep reporting that gives you a sense of place and a sense of people and lets you figure out in really porous ways how a story like this takes place and changes over time and how different people experience it and um, you know, and sometimes it's just making sure you have time. Like one of my favorite characters in the book, because, you know, we were talking about the writer Harper Lee, but actually one of my favorite writers in the book is this guy, Jim Earnhardt, who was a 20 year old reporter who was there the day the Reverend was gunned down and who, you know, actually developed this very, you know, decades long friendship with Harper Lee. And I really liked him. He continued to work in journalism his um, whole life and is still a writer. He lives over in Auburn now. And, you know, Jim is somebody where, you know, I guess probably, you know, a dozen times I asked him particular questions about the Maxwell case. But other times, you know, we just went to visit someone in Selma or we rode around Alex City or, you know, we talked about histories of Alabama or we talked about, you know, civil rights heroes in the state. And, you know, it's not as if I'm quoting those conversations in the book, but I learned more about the state and I learned more about why someone like Harper Lee would befriend him. And I learned more about, you know, the kind of ongoing struggle around civil rights in the state, because, of course, Jim had continued to cover some of these issues long after he left the local paper in Alexander City. And, you know, you just learn about people. And, you know, Jim was always good for another source or another idea of where paperwork might be. And my reporting process is, you know, as long and slow as it can be. And and I think that I used to joke that I think the kind of major breaks you get as a reporter are when you go and when you stay. Mm, Yeah. So you go to where the story took place and you just kind of stay for as long as you can, certainly beyond when you think you're done, because you just never know. And that was true in Monroeville, too. You know, you just never know when you'll cross paths with someone you didn't expect to or someone who said no to talking to you one day changes their mind the next. And, you know, the nice thing about a book, the reason it's different than a New Yorker article is you don't have three or six weeks or three months to write it. You have three years. And, you know, if you need longer, you can take longer. And that's even once I had started writing, you know, I tell the story at the end of the book of this kind of tremendous discovery of Tom Radney's briefcase. And, you know, I was already in the thick of writing the book when that happened. I thought I was kind of, I thought the answer to that mystery was, you know, the materials were lost and we may never find them. And lo and behold, you know, as if it were a time capsule, here this briefcase materialized. And I learned more about Harper Lee's work and, you know, that, that became the epilogue of the book. And so, yeah, I guess my process I'm sure it could be organized. It could certainly be more efficient because I 
I'm sure there are a lot of reporters who would just say like, well, you know, going to sit at the Waffle House is not reporting, but it feels very important to me to go and do that. And, you know, to go and see, even if nothing happens, the difference between, you know, June in Alabama and February in Alabama and the difference between a Sunday in Monroeville and a Sunday in Alexander City. And that's the kind of reporting that I just feel like for me, one of the reasons I loved getting to write this book is I didn't feel rushed in the ways that I almost always have with um, kind of shorter journalism projects. Right. Yeah. And I love that word you use porous. And I think that's exactly it. And I think it reminds me of, you know, um, you know how sometimes like you can be, you can be working in a draft and you maybe take a sentence or two out, but like the kind of negative space of the sentence is still there. Do you know what I oh, mean? Oh, totally. Like, yeah. Yeah. And I think that that like atmospheric thing that you're describing of just like the fact that you went and sat at the Waffle House, like that, that sure. stuff does kind of percolate in the, sure. in the writing. And, you know, and I don't mean to sound precious about no, sure. books. Books have to be written. <laughs> yeah, know, yeah. 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 Look, Harper Lee took too long with her book, right? Like, right, right. <laughs> at some very basic level, she, you know, needed a deadline. And of course, very good journalism gets written on deadline, and very good journalism gets written remotely. And you know, actually, like Laura Hildebrand, one of my favorite nonfiction writers, um, for reasons of you know personal ability, is is not able to go and kind of you know door knock the way that a lot of other reporters do. But she writes tremendously detailed and full narrative books. And so again, I just think, you know, people work the way they need to. And this is one of the ways that I enjoy working and it's not efficient, but um, right. It's the negative space of something you observe and may never mention, or, you know, actually, I just think one of the ways that writing is so miraculous is it's never a one-to-one translation of the experience of reporting. You know, if it were, you know, those drives with Jim would be tediously boring for most people reading them. But instead, Jim tells you one fact that slots into a different part of the book that has nothing to do with Jim Earnhardt. Or, you know, actually sitting at the Waffle House that day, you realize, you know, the perfect way to describe Harper Lee's voice. And it's because you've listened to someone else with the same accent tell a story. And, you know, you never mention if I think when writing is best, it does not kind of show its work. It just works. And right. You know, that's the kind of stuff where maybe there's a more efficient way to do it, but, but it would take a lot of the fun out of it. Right. Yeah. Um, speaking as we have been of, about knowing what you need as a writer, um, what, what do you need as a writer? Boy, what do I need? I mean, I, um, I need, so it's funny. I think like, obviously there was a very good version of this book to be written that, um, was, you know, kind of nothing to do with, the kind of larger cultural history, you know, that just stayed very tight on the murder story, for instance, Mm -hmm. and and just mentioned that Harper Lee had been interested. But I'm the kind of writer who feels like books are built from books and that, you know, the kind of depth and meaning that you give any given story comes from a greater context, whether that's history or, or something else. And so, you know, if someone's talking to me about Lake Martin, I really need to go and read something about, you know, the rivers of Alabama. And, you know, if there is a local battlefield that was part of the Creek Wars, you know, I really need to understand a little bit more about the Creek Nation and the indigenous history of the area. And even if none of that makes it into the book, or if one sentence of that makes it in, 
I need to feel that kind of sure footing as a writer. And I actually feel like quite often some of it makes it in, you know, I promise for folks who feel like, oh, she told us everything she learned about the life insurance industry. I can promise you I learned a lot more than it is in the book. (laughs) I did exercise some restraint, but, you know, I just feel like I need to understand the deeper version of anything I'm learning. And, you know, that means really being saturated in research and, you know, reading as much as I can about any given era or any given place or any given person. Um, And I am very comforted by that kind of research. And, you know, I just think that you have, I have to do that kind of work. And then ideally I'm digesting it and kind of finding the essence of it for readers. So they don't have to go read the, you know, let's say, trying to like guess how many books I read for this book, like several hundred, you know, you don't need to go read any of those several hundred books that I read, but you feel like you have because I've given you a distillation of them or given you the most salient fact from one of them and, you know, gone around kind of gathering these things for you and in, in the way that deep research can teach you something new about a story you already know or, or let you understand something you don't know anything about, like pulp pudding or rock quarrying or, you know, the white backlash to voter registration during the civil rights movement. So, yeah, I need, I mean, that's kind of my safety blanket as a writer is, is a lot of research. I just feel like, you know, too often my complaint about a book, and if it's really good, it just sends you in the direction of additional research. But too often my complaint about a book is I wanted to know more. You know, I I just wanted to know more about how something worked or why someone did something or, you know, the context in which they were living. And so as a as a reporter and as a writer, I just try and do as much research as I can. Right. And I think it really does give the work like, you know, this very immersive quality of, you know, I, for instance, like toward the very end, I mean, I, I, re- I think it really is like in some of the last few pages when you're talking about how the town has changed and the landmarks that aren't there anymore have turned into something else. I actually found it kind of startling because like the, mm. the, the place had been built so thoroughly and I was so inside it. And then, you know, once sure. I kind of got shaken out, I was like, oh, of course time, time passes. Like, of course that place is an ice cream shop now or it's been torn down or whatever. But, but yeah. it is, it, it is so effectively kind of, I don't know, like hermetically sealed in the book. Yeah, gosh, that's very kind of you to say. And of course, I I felt like it needed to come into the present, um, partly because that is the kind of strange anachronism of Harper Lee. People feel like, you know, that book came out in 1960 and it already seemed old. Right. And I just think, you know, Capote died in 1984. People are shocked she lived as long as she did. And even in the way that people talk about Watchmen, a lot of people thought it was a posthumous publication. You know, they didn't understand that she was still alive and ostensibly consenting. Um, and so, right, I was slightly worried the book would have this feel of, you know, ghost story or, you know, kind of, right, ancient history. And so I needed you to realize I didn't want to be in the book because it was there was already this great writer and there was already this great story of reporting. So I didn't want to do the kind of first person book that, you know, tells you what it's like to go combing through, you know, court documents in the basement of the Rockford you know, courthouse or, you know, to tell you what it's like to try and get an interview with Harper Lee's family or whatever. You know, I didn't want to tell those stories, but I did feel like I needed you to know a little bit about what this place is like now and and how it has changed. And so, right, it's it's abbreviated. It's very quick. But um, yeah, just in the way that it's right, it's changed and moved on in the way that, of course, every place has. Right. Was 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 kind of landing the plane 
um, a big struggle. It, it seems like that could be, you know, I, I think the structure of of these kind of three sequential, I mean, essentially biographies, but that overlap and, and intermingle with each other, you know, that's such a, that's a, I would love to talk a little, I know we're running out of time, but like I, the structure is, is very, um, serves yeah. the book very well, but then I can see the structure also kind of like making you wonder how to, how to complete it. Yeah. I mean, I should say, so, right. I, I don't want to deprive your listeners of the kind of nitty gritty craft talk. And I should say that the kind of overarching structure of the book um, emerged really early. I knew I wanted these characters to be discreet, um, partly because it was just so clear to me that while their stories intersected, it was brief and I didn't want it to seem kind of artificially connected. You know, even though these are three people totally. from small towns in Alabama, their lives are radically different. And, you know, I didn't want to ally those differences. And I also felt like um, the underlying structure, or the kind of skeleton of this book is if you can believe it, a straightforward chronology. So I veer off in these like micro histories and I give you occasional backstories, but basically the book, um, once it gets going, you know, when we, when we get into the Reverend, you know, it starts with his birth in 1925. His section goes until 1977 when he's gunned down. In terms of the Maxwell case, you know, we learn about Tom Radney's life in his section, kind of his politics and how he became the lawyer he was. But basically the plot only moves forward between 1977 and 1978 because his section ends as soon as he hands it off to Harper Lee and hers is the section where time marches on like it goes from 77 to 2016 so I know that sounds hard to believe because right I'm like taking you back to the Roman Empire and you know in Tom's section we're like learning about George Wallace and we're going through you know this the wild 68 Democratic Convention but basically in terms of what we learn about this story it goes from 1925 when the reverend's born to 1977 when he dies Tom is the hinge where we really focus on the trial of Robert Burns and what happened in 77. And then the baton is handed off to Harper Lee, where we sit with her through all of her work on the case and all of her, you know, ongoing life. You know, we go through 77, 78, we're granular through the 80s, and then she ages up and we, you know, the book kind of ends after her death in 2016. So to me, that, that chronology was really important. And that's why it felt obvious to me, you know, when she dies, I just need to let you know that they're all three dead and kind of where they are. And the subtle nod there is taking you to the tombstones is a little bit of a riff on the way that In Cold Blood ends. And, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. one of the inventions of In Cold Blood was this kind of um, really saccharine scene of Agent Dewey, the lead KBI agent on the Clutter murder case, visiting the Clutter graves with a friend of Nancy Clutter's, the um, Bonnie Clutter, the little girl who was murdered, and um, the teenager who was murdered. And so, you know, he's there with a friend of hers, and there they are. And it's a scene that Capote invented. It is a narrative invention. I'm sure right. both of those people visited those graves. Of course they did. They were you know, tremendously connected to the family. But, you know, he gives you this kind of fairy tale ending in this emotionally charged moment. And, you know, I felt like, you know, part of what I needed to do was, again, kind of side with Harper Lee on this business of invention versus reality. And, you know, there is no sweet connection between these people. You really do have to drive large distances. You really do have to confront the ways in which, you know, this landscape has changed and these stories remain distinct. And you really have to confront the failure, three very different kinds of failure, but the failure of these characters. 
Um, and that's why I do the kind of, you know, it's, it's not long, but it's a little bit of the driving tour of Alabama to get you from A to B to C and to just realize, you know, they are as distinct in death as they were in life. So, so that, um, landing the plane as it were, um, you know, that, that runway felt kind of preordained to me because I knew I wanted to critique in cold blood and kind of, you know, overtly again, make it clear that I was more allied with her in terms of how books like this should work and how, you know, nonfiction should, you know, assemble its pieces from fact, um, and, and be overt about what it can't know and not invent subjectivities. So yeah, that felt a little deliberate to me and, and, um, it just needed to end that way. Right. And you talk about, um, you mentioned your, um, wife being a writer too, and, and needing kind of sometimes you to just have eyes on it. Um, mm. and it's funny just incidentally, like I didn't realize until I got to the acknowledgements that it's Catherine Schultz. And I was like, Oh my God, what a household. Like, <laughs> I can't imagine. Yeah, yeah. Like, so my wife is actually, I said a writer, but, um, very sweetly, one of the questions I got on the book tour was, what's it like to be married to a book critic? You know, are you afraid to show her work? Um, But the truth is, she's a really capacious reader. And, you know, we we have a lot of tastes in common. And so I think she's a great reader for a book like this and likes things that are kind of mixed genre um, and likes things that are very, you know, at the sentence level, um, interested in, you know, good writing and good description. And so she's patient with a book like this. And, you know, she loves John McPhee, too. So when I I remember, I told her about Lake Martin, I'm not even sure if she had been down to see it yet, because she visited Alabama with me quite a lot. And, um, you know, when when I rented the houses, she was down there for long spells, too. And, you know, I was just telling her about this man-made reservoir and about um, the towns buried underneath of it. And, it was immediately clear to me that that was such a rich metaphor for the way that time passes and stories get buried. And, um, you know, God bless her. She's the wife for me and the book critic for me where she was like, Oh gosh, like you're obviously going to, you know, tell the story of damming the lake. Right. And I was like, yeah, I've already got a thousand words in my head. (laughs) (laughs) I think there are many other readers and spouses who just would have been like, Oh, that's so interesting. It obviously doesn't belong in your book about this murder story, but, um, yeah, so so that was a lot of fun, and um, yes, I mean, I I think that you know you don't have to marry your editor, but um, you know we do edit each other's work, and it's just so important to find people, you know, even if they're not reading your work, who you can talk to about it, and right. that's not just because you're struggling; it's because you're delighting in it, and you know, I just think she's my first call when you know reporting goes well, or you know, we share an office, so you know, we often just pipe up from something we're reading with elegant facts or interesting ideas or beautiful sentences. And um, it's just such a delight. And I think that you don't need to find that in romantic partnership. I I have some friends who, before I met my wife, served that purpose for me. But I just think that it's part of the way writing can be a joy. And, you know, actually, I don't think she would be mad if I said so, but, um, or embarrassed even, but when we met, Catherine was a very unhappy writer, slightly closer. She's mm-hmm. always more productive, but, mm-hmm. um, slightly closer to the Harper Lee side of things. And I think even she would say that there's no reason to be miserable. And, and I think even more importantly, it doesn't make the work better. You know, there yeah. you don't have to suffer. And, and maybe sometimes you do. And I don't mean to suggest that all work is easy. Look, parts of this book were very hard. Sure. Um, but it certainly is not, you know, an intrinsic characteristic of good writing, which I just feel, again, was 
Um, one of the kind of great mistakes of Harper Lee's way of thinking about writing that somehow, you know, it wasn't good if you didn't struggle for it. Um, right. And that, that just, it's, it's a real shame to me that anyone would kind of talk themselves into that view of writing because I just, I really enjoy it and I delight in it. And again, it's not always much less often easy, but I just don't think that the misery of it somehow makes it better. Right. Yeah, I love that. And I think it's it's so important to keep in mind because I think that often writers do love to kind of perversely romanticize how hard it is. Oh, gosh, totally. Yeah. And again, I mean, I don't I, I'm not trying to kind of quiet complaints. Like, again, of course, my my wife of all people is always good for, you know, it will never get done. It's the hardest thing, you know, like truly reveling in some of the kind of granular sufferings of writing. And it's fine to joke and jest. And it's also fine to be honest about what's going on. But I really I just think the danger is in fetishizing it and and somehow talking yourself into the idea that if that isn't happening, it's not real or it's not true or it's not good. Right. Well, that is a beautiful tie-in to the last thing I want to ask you, which is a question that I like to wrap up all of my conversations with, uh, which is what does creative satisfaction look like for you right now? Boy, so the nice thing about having finished the book is it means getting to read a lot of things that, um, you know, it's so sweet when you were saying you forgot that time passed and when the book ended in, you know, the aughts, you thought you were still back in the 70s. And I actually think kind of to the detriment of my contemporary reading, I was reading so much about, you know, the history of Alabama and the past that one of the nice things um, since I finished the book, and, you know, I just think reading is every bit as important as writing to a writer. I've just been kind of catching up on all the books that came out while I was working on the book that weren't about the topic of the book. <laughs> and, you know, earlier that year, earlier this year, that was, I finally got to read Patrick Radden Keefe's Say Nothing. And I'm in the middle of the Miriam Taves novel, Women Talking. And, um, you know, I was reading Regina Porter's The Travelers, which is this tremendous novel coming out. And I actually just think creative satisfaction for me is getting to, you know, kind of connect with the contemporary community of work that's being produced and to see what other people are up to. And that's another way of making sure you don't feel alone. And the struggle is to just get to delight in other people's good work. Um, and so right now I am sort of digging into book two and I'm on deadline for a piece for the New Yorker, but, but actually creative satisfaction is just getting to read these big, beautiful books that have come out or are coming out right now. Today's conversation was edited by Phoebe Wang and produced by Courtney Ballastier. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at WMFAPodcast.com. Have a question or an author you'd love to hear on the show? Email me at hello at WMFAPodcast.com and find me on Twitter and Instagram at CF Ballastier. And writers need feedback. If you're enjoying the show, please take a second to write me a review on iTunes. The WMFA logo was created by Unsold Studio, and our theme music is Jazz Dancer by Double Winter. Find them at doublewinter.bandcamp.com. WMFA is made in Pittsburgh by Courtney Ballastier, LLC, all rights reserved.